Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. Take your copy of God's Word with me this morning. Let's turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 16. It's where we'll be today, Genesis chapter 16. If you have not been with us, we have been walking through the life story of Abraham. And we're calling this series, we're calling this look at his life, learning to trust God. That's what, that's what Abraham's life is about. Um, you see his faith increase, you see his faith grow, and the hope would be that you and I, as we walk through the life of Abraham, kind of, you know, you don't have to make every mistake on your own. Did you know that? Like, you can learn from somebody else's mistake. You don't have to make every mistake on your own. And so, as we walk through Abraham's life, what we're doing is we're looking at the moments that he's obedient and at the moments that he's disobedient, and we're seeing both of those. We're watching how sometimes Abram faithfully follows and how at other times he decides to go his own way, and you can see the results. You can see the results about what happens when he's obedient to God, and you can see the results of what happens when he's disobedient to God. And surprise, surprise, it works better when we are obedient to God. This morning, the title of the message is, When You Go Your Own Way. When you take off leaving God's plan, leaving God's will, and you decide to go your own way, there are always consequences to be had when we go our own way. Listen, our culture really, like really, shows us and really promotes the idea of you going your own way. Like, in, the individualism is, the individual is regarded as the highest unit by our culture, by our society. You can have it your way all the time. Take, for instance, the cell phone that you most likely have in your pocket or purse or right there with you. Your cell phone, it, you get to choose the kind of phone that you have. You get to choose the case that you have. You get to choose the picture that's the background for you. You get to choose the tones and the sounds and the ringtone. You get to choose. You get to personalize every single thing about that phone. There is no cell phone in this building that is exactly the same because you can personalize it and you can have it your way. We're encouraged in our society to do that. It's little, it's like, um, it's like subliminally in the culture. It's like this little messaging that's just dropped all the way through pop culture. It's just peppered through there. And we don't even realize that it's so subtle, but it happens all the time, doesn't it? It's your thing. Do what you want to do. Title of our message. You can go your own way. Go your own way. The record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. BK, have it your way. You rule, right? Think about just that one little clip, that one little jingle. What that says, like I know it's talking about a hamburger. I know you're saying, David, don't make my hamburger theological. But there's something about that little jingle that says, you're the boss. You're the God. You rule. You can have it your way. It's, it's littered all through our culture. And that is a reflection of the sinfulness that is in our hearts as, as, a, as a people 
but it also appeals to us. It appeals to the sinful part of our life that says, I'm the most important. My way's probably right. I can go my own. If I don't like what God is doing, and if I don't like the timetable on which he's working, I can just go my own way. What happens when we go our own way? Let's read the passage today in Genesis chapter 16. We're going to read all of the chapter, and then we're going to come back and look at it together. The chapter begins and says, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant's in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her. She fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said to Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly I have been seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. See the contrast that's here? What we find in this chapter is Abram, Sarai, they're going their own direction. It's this real contrast, especially to the passage we looked at last week, right? Last week you see him being faithful and being obedient. You see him being this man of faith, where in this chapter he's, it's more about unbelief and doubting that God's going to do. Last chapter, remember, Abram believed on the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. In this chapter, he listens to the voice of Sarai, verse 6 or so, I think, 5 or 6. When you look at this passage, in the previous chapter, he seems to have this connection with the Lord. In this chapter, it's not there. He's going his own way. I want to take some time in the time we have left just to give you four quick things I want you to notice about this passage. It's a, it's a pattern for Abraham, but you, you'll notice that as we look to this, it's the pattern of our own lives as well, right? So I want to start off 
with a point that maybe shouldn't be in the sermon. I kept trying to cut this down to three points, but I couldn't, and, and this one's short, but I couldn't get rid of it because I think it's really integral to understanding the text. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage is the delay. And you find it in verse 1, just the first part of verse 1. It states, it says, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. We're back to this same issue that Abram and Sarah keep dealing with, where God has made this promise to Abram, you're going to be the father of many nations. And yet there's no son. Verse 3 tells us that at this point, Abram has been living in this land, had been living here in Canaan for 10 years. Imagine that. More than a decade ago, God came to Abram and said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Go to the place that I will show you. And a decade has passed. No children. They're getting older. No children. God keeps saying, this is my covenant with you. Abram, this is what I'm going to do. No children. And that delay creates in them this angst. It's all that they're thinking about. It's all that they're worried about. We know that because if you remember in the passage last week, do you remember that when God comes to him and says, fear not? In chapter 15, he said, fear not. I'm your shield. Your reward is very great. And, and, and what was the next thing that Abram said? But I don't have an heir. Where's the child you promised? It's on their minds. It's consuming them. And this delay, the fact that they want God to act and he's not acting when they, when they want him to, this will create, this will set up the circumstances for them to go through with this scheme. I think it's just worth mentioning that we talk about the delay, but the real essence of this story starts with the disobedience section. If you look at those next few verses there, it tells us how really it's Sarah, it's Sarah that hatches this scheme. They all have a role in this scheme, but it's, it's Sarai that really is the driving force behind it. She realizes that they're both very old. She may feel that she's incapable of having children, but, but maybe her husband can. And so she starts to concoct this plan where she will scheme to get a child out of this. One of the commentators that I was reading this week had this sentence in, the, in, the, in his commentary. He said, faith is living without scheming. That's good, isn't it? That's what she's doing. She's not trusting him. She's scheming as to how she can make this work. Notice Abraham, uh, Hagar's role in this. Hagar is their servant. Hagar's this, this servant, this Egyptian girl who's serving there. She's, she's Sarah's maid. She's like an assistant to her. And, and in their culture, in that culture around them, it was, this was a common practice it's, that Hagar would would become a second wife of Abram. She would become a concubine. She would just be a childbearing wife. Kind of the logic was she was seen as Sarai's property, and so any children that she had were also considered her property. And so it would not, there was no shame in this. This was something that, that she would do this, and other people would know that Hagar was the biological mother, but that was irrelevant. She was Sarai's handmaid. Some of you may have even watched like The Handmaid's Tale or, re or read, you know, The Handmaid's Tale. And th what you're seeing is that. It, it, it's the, the original Handmaid's Tale is what we're reading here. Sarah couldn't have the children, so Hagar will have the children on my behalf, 
and they will be mine. Hagar, when you, when you kind of read this, this thing, it's almost like uh, Hagar's not really, you don't even think about her doing anything wrong in them bringing her into this. It's the custom that was around them. And so Sarai latches on to that. Notice Abraham's role in all of this. Abraham is just along for the ride. He's just very passive. He's not leading. He's not reminding them of God's promise. None of that. He just kind of goes along with everything. It's very reminiscent of Adam, you know? Here, eat this fruit. Okay. <laughs> you know? It's very reminiscent of all of that. And that, that's kind of the way you, that's what you get. The, that's the feel you get of Abram throughout this text. Okay, whatever you say. He just kind of goes along with it all the way through. From the outside looking into this, we definitely recognize all of the mistakes that they were making. But if you're in their shoes, it's not so clear. If you're in their shoes, if you're in Sarai's shoes, think about the way that she does this where she rationalizes every part of it. You know, she knew that they were too old to be having children. You know, God, when he made that covenant with you, Abram, he said that this son, this son of promise, would be your blood. But he didn't say anything about me. Maybe it's your blood, but it's not my blood. Maybe God has brought us to this place where all of these people around us use this concubine system for the mistress to have children. Maybe God has brought us to this place for us to see this all around us so that we would integrate this into our life and this would be the means that he would, he would produce this child. Why not, Abraham? Why couldn't we do this? And you know, it seems to be successful because Hagar gets pregnant. It seems to be working. Isn't it funny how we rationalize all that? None of that is in the text. Do you know how I was able to share with you what I just shared? Do you know how as I prepared in my study this week, you know how I was able to do that? Because I scheme just like Sarah does. I rationalize my sin the same way Sarah does, the same way you do. And so I thought if I was Sarah and I wanted to make this right, how would I make it right? You know, one of the ways that we can catch ourselves in our justifications, one of the things that should have stood out to her is like, she's thinking rationally, but God never, God never sees Hagar as Abram's wife. Like God, God's not for this. The old saying is that everything, the, like everything the Bible reports, the Bible doesn't support. And so just because the Bible is telling us this doesn't mean... And so it's interesting that when you read through here, all the people around would have said, and the text even says that she gave him as to be his, her wife. He, uh, verse 3, and she gave to Abram her husband as a wife. She gave Hagar to him. But nowhere does God recognize, nowhere does Scripture recognize Hagar as a wife. She's always the bond servant. She's always the bondwoman. She's always Sarai's servant, Sarai's maid. That's how the, it always comes. God never uses, never calls us to sin in order to enact his will. Now listen, 
We may make bad choices, and God may fold our bad choices into his sovereign plan. God does that. But James tells us that God doesn't call us to sin, or God doesn't tempt us to sin. You can check yourself when you realize that the thing that you're rationalizing is, I'll do this sinful thing in order to make God happy. Everything Sarah is saying in her description, I'm sure what she's thinking about in her mind, it's all rational, but it's not very biblical. But we do that. I had a couple one time, they were, um, they were not married. They were living together. They did not want to get married because their, um, their financial situation and some of the benefits that they had, it would have changed if they would have gotten married. And so it made more sense rationally, practically. They thought it makes more sense for us just to be committed, love each other, live together, not get married. That just makes sense um, it, because we don't, we don't want to lose out on that money, you know. And here's what the, here's what the guy said to me. And he said, I think the Lord knows our circumstances. I think he understands. You see how we'll like take a thing and we'll twist it and we'll turn it to make God on our side. We don't get God on our side. We get on his side. This was the plan. And God's timetable was, was, was working. Abram and Sarai jump ship and go their own way. I love Ray Stedman. As I was reading him this week, his, uh, this is what he said about Sarai's thought process. He said, Sarai's difficulty was simply that all of her actions grew out of a basic philosophy, which put very simply says, God has told me what he wants. Now the rest of it depends on me. God has shown me what the goal is, and it's up to me to figure out how to reach it. I know what he wants, and I can count on him for help, but the rest is up to me. No matter how we rationalize it, no matter how we spin it, anytime we go our way, it's our scheming. It's us departing from God. It's going our own way. It's, no matter how rational our schemes seem to be, it's disobedience to God when we depart from his will. The third thing I want you to see from this text is I want you to see what happens are the result of the disobedience. The delay seemingly produces in their heart a willingness to disobey. Um, that's why Sarah's scheming. But out of the disobedience comes a division within their whole household. We talked a little bit about their roles, but it, it seemed at first that the plan was successful. Hagar becomes pregnant with the baby. It seems like all the problems are fixed. Here's this child. But very, very quickly, it all begins to sour. Like the fruit of their scheme begins to sour before the child is even born. Notice how it happens in this text. You begin to see immediately, starting about the middle of verse 4, starting in verses 4 through 6 is where my focus is here, in those three verses, you really see how all of them are just fighting with each other. Now, here's what, here's what should have happened. And this is, this is the pattern that I find for myself in this. What should have happened is that the first sign that things have soured, at the first sign that, that, things, that going my way has been a mistake, at the first moment of that, they should have all repented and turned it over to the Lord. They should have gone to the altar. They should have taken that to the Lord and repented of their scheming. Were there going to be consequences? Was a baby still on the way? All of that? Yes. 
but they should have immediately gone and repented. But like, I mean, you do like me, I know. At the first sign of trouble, we try to convince ourselves that it's really not as bad as it looks. But what begins to happen is it begins to fester, and what they do, they make the mistake that we often do, they continued to just go their own way. Notice what Sarai does. Notice how each of them kind of handled the situation. Sarai, she, she starts like pointing fingers. If you read verse 5, and you didn't have any other thing, it's like Sarah forgot that it was her plan. She came up with it. She's the one that presented it. But notice what she says. May the wrong that's been done to me be on you. What does she say? Abram, this is all your fault. <laughs> it's a good spin. She has spun this thing around. It's pretty good. Now that she's pregnant, she's looking on me with contempt. Notice Hagar and her problem here. Hagar gets haughty. Hagar begins to be a little bit arrogant. I can give him something she can't. And Sarah begins to notice those glances. She begins to notice the little comments, and she starts to get jealous. And now her feelings are hurt. But it can't be her fault, so I'll blame Abraham. Abraham, when she confronts him, notice how he reacts in verse 6. Instead of putting his foot down, instead of, instead of going in and, and having pity on Hagar and then, get, you know, for, for Sarah's feelings, or, you know, instead of like defending Hagar, instead of um, encouraging Sarah and Hagar and, and all of them to repent and turn it over to the Lord, instead of encouraging Hagar to respect Sarah, he doesn't do any of that. He just, hey, this is your thing, man. You know, whatever you want to do. You just handle, if you feel slotted in this, you just handle it however you want to. And how does Sarai handle it? In verse 6, it says that Sarai dealt harshly with her. In the original language, it conveys more of what happened. She became verbally and physically abusive. Verbally and physically abusive to Hagar. How does Hagar handle the problem? She runs away from it. Anybody else run away from that problem? And when it comes, I just won't think about it. I'll just put my head in the sand. I'll just run away from it. I'll just bury these feelings. I just won't deal with them. Hagar takes off. In every instance, they all handle the division in different ways, but the key here is, is that none of them repent. None of them admit that their way is wrong. They persist in it. They continue going their own way. Notice how it is resolved. Notice how the Lord steps in to this mess that they have made. The Lord is the one who initiates um, this call to repentance. If you look at the last part of the story, we've talked about the delay, disobedience, division. Let's talk a moment about the deference. Deference is simply submission. It's simply submitting to the will of God. Throughout the course of this, they have been headstrong. They have not been giving deference to the will of God. They have been doing what they want. But if, if we're ever going to make things right, if, things are ever going to, if we're ever going to learn to trust God through our disobedience, there must be a moment where we return deference to him, 
where we acknowledge that our way is the wrong way and his way is the right way, that it's so much better and we should be walking in it. And then we turn from the way that we are going and we turn to him. This little conversation between God and Hagar is very revealing. You get some some latent clues throughout the text that Abram and Sarai have repented at some point and turned to the Lord, but I really love the language that's used here with, with Hagar. Notice what happens in verse 8. I love how the Lord shows up in verse 7, and in verse 8, he says to her, look at the, look at the question, where have you come from and where are you going? Isn't that great? God asks that question as if he doesn't know. Right? The angel of the Lord appears and asks this question, where have you come from and where are you going? She would have told you, maybe I'm going back to Egypt, I'm going back home, I've had enough of this place, she beats me and I'm sick of it, I've had enough of it, I'm going back home. But really she didn't know what her future held. God would show her. Now, I want us to, I want us to focus for just a minute on all the other things he tells her about her future. And before he gives her, I mean, he gives her some instruction in verse 9, but before we dive into that instruction, which is really important, I want us to deal with some of the things that aren't really pertinent to our story, but are important, okay? You'll notice that in verses 11 and 12, he gives her lots of information about the child that she's carrying. Her future was uncertain, but God says you'll bear a son. You'll call his name Ishmael, which means God hears. You see in verse 11, you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And so the name Ishmael means God hears. In this story, on down in verse 12, it says a few things about him. It says Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. That's not an insult, and it's not saying he'll be a jerk. It just is the idea that he'll be independent. He'll be independent, maybe even strong-willed. Notice a few other things that are said there about him when it describes the idea of his hand being against everyone and all of those things. You know, we're getting to a place here in some of this story of Abraham where there's a lot of things that happen that, are, that don't help us. We want our focus to be on how Abraham's faith grew. And so there's a lot to this story that we don't really need to focus on. So, for instance, there's another instance in, in Genesis 21 about Ishmael. After the son of promise has come, after Isaac has been born, Ishmael's bullying Isaac, and, and Hagar and Ishmael have to go away again. They, they end up and leave Abram's household. And in this instance, God gives Hagar what she needs. In Genesis 21, in that instance, she gives, he gives Hagar what she needs. God provides for them and shows up. We probably won't cover that when we get to Genesis 21, but it's interesting that God hears her, that God senses that need. Another thing that, that's not really, that is not really pertinent to the story, but I feel like I need to throw in, is, you know, Ishmael, when it talks about him being kind of the, you know, a, have a great people, he'll be the, you know, he'll, he'll be one where he'll multiply the offspring of Ishmael. You know, Ishmael is kind of the root of all of those Arab people. And so today we turn on the news and we hear a story about division between Israel and Gaza. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of history there. 
There's a lot of history there, but ultimately that history is rooted in this story. Because, because the Jewish people are descendants of, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in that line, where those Arab people are, are descendants through this way, through Abraham and Ishmael and through that direction. And so when you start looking at that conflict, the root of that conflict is found here. When we start talking about the consequences of this story, and when we think a little in just a moment about the, consequ- the diso- consequences of their disobedience, this scheme that Sarah hatched was more than just one child. It, the consequences of this bad decision will reverberate throughout the centuries. But it was really rational. It really seemed like a good idea at the time. Notice, though, how God encourages or calls Hagar to deference. You find it in verse 9. The advice or the instruction that he gives to Hagar is the instruction that, must, that Abram must follow to be right with him. It's the, it's the instruction that Sarai must follow to be right with him. It's what you and I must follow. If you're here today and you are walking outside of the will of God, you are living in your own disobedient way. You are going your own way and not following him. This is the instruction that will make the difference for you today. Return. Submit. He says, return back to Sarai and submit to her. Now, that's pretty hard. She knows that she goes back. She may be beaten like she was before. She knows that it's a hard spot. She knows that she had been haughty. Maybe she has to go back and apologize. But whatever she does, he says, go back and give deference to her. We can kind of conclude somewhere along the way that Hagar had put her trust in the one true God because when he appears to her, when the angel of the Lord appears to her, when he speaks to her, what does she do? She's obedient and she does it. There's no accounting in Genesis chapter 16 of Sarai's submission or of Abraham's submission, but we do know this. It does seem like after that, when she goes back, it does seem that that Sarai at least wasn't harsh to her anymore. Sarai wasn't, maybe she accepted the consequences of this or accepted the situation. By the time you get to Genesis 21, it seems like Ishmael has been raised in this household with all of these people caring for him. We can make some assumptions about how Sarai returned and submitted. You can even see hints of it in Abram's life. By the time we get to the end of the story, when you get down to verses 15 and 16, which are actually a new paragraph in the text, Abram has left his passive role, and you find that Hagar bore this son, and Abram called him Ishmael, which is what the Lord had commanded. It seems that Abram is submitted to the Lord. He's, he's returned to the Lord, submitted to him, and is walking in, in this leadership role once again. This is kind of like a tragic story. But when, when a hard lesson like this comes and we realize what it means to go our own way and the consequences that come from it, it does teach us the next time to think twice, to follow him. You know, Abram and Sarah had to learn to live with their mistakes. Like what's so interesting about this story is, is we think, okay, God's not doing what I want. I'll go my own. Hey, will you leave, uh, Philip, will you leave that, leave that, uh, yeah, that outline up just for, yeah, yeah, just for one second. 
I've, I've gone my own way, and uh, I've, I've, God's not doing what I want in my own time, so I'll go my own way, and yet brings about a problem, and yet I'll repent, and everything will just be great after that. Listen, you're with the Lord, and the Lord can handle and, and, and make right all of our mistakes, but what happens during that time of disobedience always has consequences. And for them, there was this child for them, there was this, it would create ripples in their family for the next few decades. It will create ripples around the world. It will have global consequences for centuries, millennia. These people watched this child grow. I mean, think about that. When I think about this, I think about them. You know, like, I'm sure that they were all happy when Ishmael took his first steps. When Ishmael said his first word, all those things that, you know, like a baby does that, you know, they all kind of focus on that baby and and raising this baby, and, and I'm sure there's happiness in that. But here's the thing about our disobedience, is that there's always these consequences that go with it, and do you ever think that there's this moment where Sarai laughs when she watches him do this thing as a little toddler? And if you were to see her on the outside, she's laughing and she's smiling. But at the moment, right at the very end, when the smile's still on her face and it's about to fade away, her thoughts go back to this scheme. She remembers why this child's here in the first place. It hurts her. I remember when Joseph and Noah were little. Joseph and Noah were very different kids. You know, Joseph would come home, kick his shoes off, and line them up under his bed. He would hang his coat up on a hook. Noah would come home, kick his shoes off, take his jacket off, run to his bedroom at the end of the hall, sling them, and head off to do whatever he was doing again. They were very different. I remember Joseph coloring a picture. It was a picture of the silver surfer. It was like a superhero coloring book, and he was coloring the silver surfer. And Noah was there coloring with him, and Noah decided he was going to help. So Noah takes a red crayon and puts a mark on that, and Joseph freaks out. He's so, like he's crying, he's upset, you know. And Amy was trying to console him. Amy said, it's just one, it's, just, it's, it's not messed up. It's just one Joseph, but he's the silver surfer, you know. Like, it's, it's not red. There's no red involved here, man. It's messed up. Don't you see this? Sometimes with us, isn't, isn't that us? Like, here's the thing about us. We may be here today, and you may be wrestling with disobedience or even the consequences of things, and we feel like our mistakes can never be righted. We feel like they can never be made right. But you know, with this mistake that they made, God wasn't caught by surprise. And even though the consequences last, even though the consequences at times are permanent, the enemy wants to make you think that, the, that those moments of disobedience define you for the rest of your life. But that's not the case. That's why we love Jesus so much. That's why we love the forgiveness that he offers. Here's a verse in Isaiah 53 that I want us to look at before we close today. It's a verse on the front of the bulletin. Isaiah 53 and verse 6 says this. 
all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen, when it comes to our sin, sin always has consequences and sin will always be punished. But here's why we love Jesus. Because he came to live among us, to live a perfect life, and to bear the weight and the consequences of our sin on the cross of Christ Jesus. Romans 8 and verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 1 is true because Christ went to the cross and he bore our sin there. Listen, I don't know what mistakes have happened in your past. I don't know what ways you have diverged or in hearing Diana's story, how you've gone to far country. I don't, I don't know how that's happened for you, but it's not the end of the story. It doesn't have to be the end of the story. That's the hope that we have in Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers. I want to close today by reading something from a message from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is talking about that moment when God appears to Hagar in the wilderness. And he brings up the point that, you know, Hagar didn't call on God, but God showed up. Hagar wasn't praying, pouring out her heart. To him, God just shows up. The language is not like we speak, but this is so good. Listen to what he says in this message. Do you not see her crouching at the fountain, half mad with pride and vexation, and at the same time stricken with a sullen despair. She knows not what she's to do. Neither does any way of hope open before her. Alas, poor Hagar. But although there was no prayer of hers for God to hear, another voice spake in his ear. The angel who suddenly appeared to her said, The Lord hath heard thy affliction. That's a beautiful sentence. Thou hast not prayed, thou hast been willful, reckless, and at last despairing, and therefore thou hast not cried unto the Lord. But thy deep sorrow has cried to him. Thou art oppressed, and the Lord has undertaken for thee. Thou art suffering heavily, and God has heard thy affliction. Grief has an eloquent voice when mercy is the listener. Woe has a plea which goodness cannot resist. Though sorrow and woe ought to be attended with prayer, yet even when supplication is not offered, the heart of God is moved by misery itself. In Hagar's case, the Lord heard her affliction. He looked forth from his glory upon that lone Egyptian woman who was in the deepest distress in which a woman could well be placed. And he came speedily for her to help. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, listen to nothing but the sound of my voice for the next few minutes. See if the Holy Spirit would impress upon your heart where you should be this morning. Hagar did not cry to, to the Lord because Hagar was willful, disobedient, and reckless with everything that God had given her. Are you here this morning in the middle of going your own way? Wrestling with a decision to go your own way. Is it that you have come in this morning and you, are, you have no relationship with him, you are not walking with him, there is nothing about your life that expresses faith in God. But this morning his Holy Spirit has spoken to, to, to you. Could it be that this morning you have not cried out to him 
But his Holy Spirit knows the misery of your sinful heart. And he would speak to you the same words that he spoke to Hagar by that fountain. Return. Submit. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Rooted and Resolved is a ministry of Center Grove Baptist Church. You can find us at centergrovebaptist.com.